I have this little theme. We can use it for going out. It's a thing uh, from the Three Penny Opera. And it's the last, it's the coda from Three Penny Opera. It's, <laughs> it's my, what is it? I have such a conditioned response to it by now that I can hardly start talking without it. I wanted to make a note because it's, the Christmas weekend, I tried to go to a play on Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve, and Three Penny Opera is playing at the Shotgun Players over on Ashby. And I have not seen it, and I don't know whether to recommend it or not, but I think any production of the Three Penny Opera is worth, well, I the last time I saw it, B.B. Newworth played the role of the... Um, Oh, the Lottie Lenya role. I think it's Jenny, right? Uh, the the tough gal. But uh, no, that's the B. Arthur role. Anyway, check out Shotgun Players uh, today. I had put together uh, a bunch of children's stories, and then I noticed that I got so maudlin that I thought I'd just skip it this year. I found myself doing. Uh, really disgusting things like you know if it's my last christmas that sort of bs and i decided that the thing to do to get myself under control is to uh, get historical not hysterical historical uh no reading the little match girl that was my original plan the little match girl i decided was the the original story um of uh what is it uh, the goddess the great mother i remember as a preschool child reading the little match girl you know the one about the child who dies as she's trying to sell matches in the street she freezes to death and as she's dying she lights all her little matches and she has a vision of her grandmother who's the only person who ever loved her and the grandmother comes down and takes her to heaven now i was the sort of little well too much Victoriana, I guess, the sort of little child who just fell apart over the um, melancholy stories. You know, Tiny Tim time <laughs> is is my Christmas shtick. I hope I don't. I hope I don't uh, roll back into that in my old age. What I'm going to do today, just to get myself uh, in tune, is to um, read from a book of my own. It's my Christmas present to myself, yes. Uh, it's called Telegraph Avenue then. And what I thought I would do is just to test myself. I'm going to go back 30 years. Uh, Christmas time, 30 years ago, 1979, 89, 99, Right. 30 years ago, I think that the way to... Um, the way to pin myself down is to see, I think actually, I think I was more melancholy uh, then, you know, in my 40s. Uh, it's funny how that works. Um, Beckett is always talking about that, you know. He says, try again, fail again, fail better. I'm trying to fail better with the years. Uh, anyway, I think that's the thing to do. Let's see where I was at. Um, I think, you know, those of us who spend a lot of time wringing our hands and waiting for the apocalypse, uh, uh, I think it depends more, it depends more on, um, whether we're feeling well. What is it? Somebody said that temperament is based on whether or not you have good digestion. Uh, 
Anyway, I think I've outgrown my tragic sense, but let me read you some of these excerpts from this old memoir to see where I was at, because it helps, what is it? It helps to remind us that, um, you know, time and tide, uh, change is inevitable. You don't have to go out and look for it. <laughs> you can't avoid it. Okay. This is um, a piece from uh, late November 1979 in Berkeley. I don't want to go home to an empty television set. I'll go to the cafe. I'll go to La Promethea, listen to the poets. There they are, very young. I feel trapped between the generations. I mean, who isn't? This cafe in Berkeley, it could be North Beach in the 50s. Only hippies are not beatniks and are not repeating what we were saying then. I pin false flowers on my dress. Belladonna deadly nightshade. Bell-shaped deep crimson flowers with the glistening black berries. I set my black hat at an angle. No one here would recognize me if I changed my clothes. On the wall hangs a painting of La Salamandrine, the one who passes through fire unscathed. A portrait of Promethea smiles at her from the poet's platform. Eastern carpets, red lantern light, an old piano, stained glass windows, they get me as far as the bar. With wine before me, I consider the poet's stage, it's a kind of pulpit. A noose hangs from the ceiling, twined with plastic red roses. A poet arrives. Taking a chair to the stage, he piles his work on the platform. The manuscripts spill. He pulls up another chair on which he places his beer and a second pile of manuscripts. His voice can be heard from under a wide-brimmed hat. He tells us he is a gay poet. His poems are printed on embossed paper because he likes the look of the thing, he says. He makes academic jokes which underplay life. Wreaths of cigarette smoke come from underneath the great flat hat. The poems are all about the pain of being cast as the other woman. In his relationships, he is the other woman with a mustache that kind of thing. I won't call him a derivative derelict because I liked his hat. Another poet reads, he is gay too, he says, but he wants to be called queer. He dresses tough. He reads crotch and foreskin poems. Two middle-aged straight males have wandered into the wrong bar. There is an altercation, some obscene words and gestures. <laughs> Damned hippie preverts. 
once is. The cognoscenti demands silence for the esoteric obscenity coming from the stage. So few voices in the world, and so many echoes. Who was the first original, the first cave person to speak? In the beginning was the word, and the word was probably, oh, expletive. <laughs> and everyone everywhere said it all at once. Oh, I guess you know what that word is, yes. Anyway, when the queer poet finishes, he says, he hopes he scared the hell out of us. A black poet admonishes the audience to clap equally for each poet in turn. Because it's all the same, man. It's all the same, the same voices echoing forever. A gang of strolling players break up the scene. They have come to perform a satire on the arrogance of poets. <laughs> Terminal megalomania, narcissism, delusions of grandeur. The trouble with poets, says Telegraph Avenue's resident poet and bubble lady Julia Vinograd. The trouble with poets is nobody shoots them. One of the players wearing a trench helmet with antlers holds the audience captive with a burp gun and a fire hose. Irene Dogmatic appears, wearing lace underwear, several rhinestones on her rump. She admits that, well, men bring out the masochist in her. She sits with a gigantic bag between her legs. She pleads with the antlers not to have to carry this bag around with her every month. Finally, she gives up and pulls the cord. The contents of the bag are dredged from between her legs. Broken baby dolls, blood-soaked rags, American flags, curlers, blood-stained underpants, nylon stockings, girdles, baskets of broken eggs, and more female flotsam all pouring forth to the music of our national anthem. <laughs> the last poet says, he hasn't anything left to say. He said it all. But he didn't want to go home without taking his turn. So he thought he would show us a little can of worms. Each little worm should be examined in turn, he says, because it's all the same. Each one... Each worm, each word. <laughs> I'm breaking into my own memoir here, yes. I do remember those glorious days with my friend Sally Sleepwell. Oh, some of the uh, feminists, yes, feminist fist in the air, they would rope themselves to crucifixes with sanitary napkins. It was very, very, very funny anyway. This is the next evening at La Salamandra, where everyone has written a poem about a laundromat. Well, I feel left out. I can't go to a laundromat on purpose. 
It's against my rules for creating the found or accidental poem. It's not right to try. At last, I have to go in a laundromat to use the phone. I look around furtively, and there sits my poem. He is a young, black male, sitting under the hairdryer. He's wearing pink, topsy curlers in his hair. He is smoking little brown cigarettes and reading the letters of George Jackson. My God, he's me. <laughs> We're still in December 1979. Why can't I get it together? Blue pencil blues, this difficulty of refining and rewriting. I can't do it today. Endless adding, dangling, expanding, reflections in the mud. Cut the crap when in doubt, throw it out. Squeeze the essence out of the meaning. Get rid of unnecessary references, names of things, maps of thoughts. I'll work in one style only. I'll order a form or form an order. But it always seems that everything is necessary to me and only always more is needed, but nothing is ever necessary except to be going on from there where it was to where is the next thing. It is no use saying things. Necessity and memory are dry rot. Reason and psychology are excuses. Secrets of the heart are seldom news. The party line is bugged. It blocks the private vision. Doris Lessing says... Novels are lying nostalgia, so why not write the truth? It is not possible to write lies, only to read them. This is still December 1979. And this section, I remember, I was going through one of my Gertrude Stein phases. Yes, Gertrude, there's a little, a little tag. I love those little quotes in italics at the top of the entries in this memoir. It's called Telegraph Avenue. Then Gertrude writes, do you know, because I tell you so, or do you know, do you know? Yes, it's the same coffee house. My goodness, evening in the coffee house. Once more, I'm sitting here. I'm reading my notebook in which I have written that thing. That thing he said to me. There are only two kinds of women in the world, he said. The loved and the unloved. I make a note in the margin... Bob Benchley once said, there are only two sorts of people in the world, those who divide people into two groups and those who don't. Young women come into the cafe, undines, sea nymphs, swimming through the smoke, floating down onto chairs, as if settling on coral stools, sand sinking down around them, mar fire, shining in their hair. I do not listen to their words. At the table in the window sits a young woman named Echo. She is a maenad seduced by 
can. He sits grinning at her with Saturnalian glee. She's been his to command ever since her heart broke during that fatal affair with Narcissus. Oh, it helps me to use names for things. Metaphors, metaphors. It's why I went to school. Names of the myths help distance the pain. Ah, uh, oh, yes, wrap it up. On bad days, I call myself Cassandra. It's harmless. A young male I've known for a time sits down at my table. He makes his living, gets by, uh, stealing books. Usually books on philosophy. He sells them back to the bookstores. He's listening carefully to the undines at the next table. I ask him if he can remember the name of the woman who killed herself in Hitler's flat in Berlin in 1931. Uh, Hitler's cousin, I think. I read somewhere she was the great love of Hitler's life. I never doubted he had one. The young male does not hear my question. Why am I always wringing my hands and talking about dying, he wants to know. Well, I only wondered, I tell him, if she might not have changed history. I wonder a lot about things like that. When Stalin's wife shot herself, all Stalin said was, how could she do this to me, or words to that effect. Your history is not true, the young male says. Stalin had her killed, everyone knows. She said something he didn't like during a dinner party. Then he sent her to her room, and then he sent along someone to shoot her. The young sea nymph, sitting closest to us, turns to another young woman at her table and says, Well, she sure as hell wants to get laid this evening, and the young male who steals philosophy books turns a little white and says, She sounds awfully aggressive. Well, I assure him she is only bored, so he turns on her and makes what would once have been called a forward pass. A rose by any other name would smell. <laughs> I think I'll skip, yes, I'll skip through the Christmas days, yes, in this book I remember. Mm, I was still doing the single mom thing, trying to put Christmas together on my own. That's a little too dark, a little too melancholy to look back on, although it had its humorous moments. Uh, here's something called The Politics of Lipstick. It's still, well, it's not 30 years ago, it's 29 years ago. We're up to 1980? No, yes. I'm suffering from a split lip. I've given up lipstick. It was a political decision. Heavy. I used to wear a dark mauve eggplant. My lips are cracked and chapped. I'm tight-lipped like a dried prune. I must lie a lot or my mouth would be relaxed, not twisted and wrinkled and bitten and bleeding. 
Last night, at a party, I gave a woman a hug. She took that as a political statement. The revolution of touch. Her mood changed when she saw my eyeshadow. She resented it. Oh, I can't give up my eyeshadow. I've got faded Dutch blue eyes. They disappear behind my glasses. Well, she tells me a gob of blue eyeshadow makes a suppliant statement. Blue, she says, is pretty and appealing. I should get rid of the soft colors. I should use coal. It's charcoal and fierce. Looking around the room, I saw she was right. I was the only woman wearing any makeup. When I was in high school, only liberated tramps wore makeup. Here I am again. History repeats herself. <laughs> was it Gertrude Stein wrote? Yes, she said. Let me recite what history teaches. History teaches. Hmm, this is the next morning. Yes, I'm on the subway, the BART platform. There's a young woman on the subway platform. There's a baby on her back, baby on her lap, baby in her belly. At her age, I hadn't even made it. God bless the finger effing fifties. Here we go. Next day, next day. Party line feminists overheard in coffee house. Oh dear. I really can't read this one. My goodness, times have changed. <laughs> I'll read the last couple of lines. I don't think they're too much of a scandal. Yes. Party line feminists, and how's your vagina, dear? Oh, my vagina's okay, I guess. How's China? Oh, China. Never mind about China. I mean, well, China's got her hang-ups, and I've got mine. Oh, your vagina's in trouble, then? I'll say. I mean, even my shrink thinks I'm impenetrable. But he does have hope. Well, no, but I have medical. <laughs> the next one has a uh, quote from Henry Miller. And uh, again, I have a problem with the language. Isn't that interesting? Oh, we were so foul-mouthed in the old days. Yes, Henry Miller says, an old sea is a dead loss. You work it out. A young man sitting in the coffee house now reading The Tropic of Cancer. Oh, this Miller's the Messiah. The young woman with him does not agree with him. She says, he's your poet. He doesn't speak for me. The young man tells her Henry Miller speaks for everyone. The poet, wrote Henry Miller, is not one who writes verses but someone who is capable of profoundly altering the world. That is, a messianic mother effer like Miller. The young woman asks me, if I don't think Miller was more narcissistic than messianic. 
Well, I tell them Miller was a serious artist, and he made some big changes. His phallocentrism is a lot more fun than D.H. Lawrence's, if not as poetic. Well, the young man says, yeah, that's because Henry Miller rejected his mother. D.H. Lawrence loved his. That's what makes the difference, he says. If you don't reject your mother, it impedes your manhood. Impedes is the word he used. The young woman's name is Karen. She's into poetry and Zen. She rejects Freud and the phallocentrics. <laughs> she laughs. She calls them a new rock band. She tells the young man who has a name, his name is Steve. She tells him she does not recognize any difference between platonic love and sexual or genital love. She refuses to separate lust from love. While Karen gets another cappuccino, Steve asks me, Well, should we tell her platonic love was Plato's love for boys? Genital sex is at the bottom of everything. I know you know that at your age. You tell her. She'll believe an older woman. Four years is a long time trying to relate to these Berkeley poets. Futility is setting in. After Steve goes, Karen sighs. She asks, where is all this sisterhood she's been hearing about among the women writers? Her disillusion betrays her youth. She feels poetry is no longer being written in the spiritual tradition. <laughs> she loses her own faith now and then. Where, where is the sacred text to guide us? In my Yiddish accent, I tell her, In the beginning was the void, and the void has failed us. <laughs> I pull out my notebook with my daily scribbles, yes. Been working for shrinks, and my notebook is a mess, yes. Impression is involutional melancholia paranoid type. This is your friendly neighborhood nymphomaniac calling. Nostalgia, my thing. Fossil fragments of extinct dreams. Ezra Pound under an umbrella sharing sandwiches with those more fortunate than he. Things were more fun in the old days, or I was. The only good poet is a dead poet. I have no intention of dying. I shall become extinct. Back to sediment, to primal slime. Through my fossil to the bottom. Lord Byron will lead me to the sea. What I want to know is, who got the brass ring? I never knew a poet knew how to live. Poets are fossils to begin with. Limestone liars make me tired. Pontificating, pretentious old pricks they are. How unpleasant to meet Mr. Elliot, not that anyone did. No, I never knew a poet knew how to live. Dylan knew how to die. What's he to Hecuba? Nothing at all. That's why there'll be no wedding this Wednesday week way down in old Bengal. Listen to me. Listen to me, love. Listen just a moment. 
Do not speak ill of the gentleman with the scythe. Just bring a bottle and come. Come over at once. This has been Jennifer Stone reading you excerpts from a memoir that I wrote more than 30 years ago. Doesn't seem like I've changed a bit. (laughs) Perhaps yes, perhaps no. Jingle bells, folks. Jingle bells. Here it comes. Wrap up one more present. I think this year I just might have a drink. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning, New Year's Eve morning, at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Sixty years of KPFA, a legacy. This is Sandy in Oakland. My parents were original subscribers to KPFA when it first came on the air, even though we did not live in this area. We lived in uh, uh, the peninsula. All I remember hearing is good things about KPFA. And When I became a college student in 1957, I listened to the station and been listening and been subscribing ever since. So uh, keep up the good work, and um, thank you very much. Become part of KPFA's legacy. Visit kpfa.org slash support for information about how donating a car or participating in planned giving will keep KPFA on the air for generations to come. Visit kpfa.org slash support today.